This is Future Sight, a show from Capgemini Invent. I'm Liz Lunier. On this show, we explore new ways for you to adapt and grow for the future in business. This week, we're continuing our September deep dive into sustainability, beginning a two-part episode on one of the most pressing issues facing businesses today, the race to reach net zero. Over two episodes, we'll delve into carbon neutrality, leaving no worker behind, and what it means to reach not just net zero, but to go beyond it, speaking to the leading minds at Capgemini and beyond to get a full view of this vital realm. We all know the term net zero. It's printed on ad campaigns, a buzzword that every CEO uses in their keynote, but net zero is just the start of true sustainability. Net zero is essentially a neutral gear in our path to solving climate change, neither backwards nor forwards. So what does beyond net zero, the forward gear look like? This approach looks to how companies can tangibly contribute to creating a sustainable ecosystem both inside and outside of their organizations. It shows that if industries can work together to find better approaches, rather than just iterating internally, they will be able to create a truly meaningful and sustainable impact. But before we add in the notion of beyond, we should first work out what the term net zero means by itself. To find out, I spoke to one of our experts in this field at Capgemini, Florent Andrion, our Vice President and Energy and Utilities Lead at Capgemini Invent. I asked him to give me a definition of net zero and to tell me where we currently stand in the race to achieve it. So before we really uh, give a definition of what is net zero, maybe a bit of clarity among the terms. We hear a lot talking about carbon neutrality, which means that any uh, CO2 which is released in the atmosphere from a company or an organization activity is then balanced by an equivalent being removed. We hear also climate neutrality, so that refers to all greenhouse gases beyond just CO2. And uh, then there, there is also uh, further engagement, which means being net zero. So net zero CO2, meaning that you release absolutely no carbon emission into the atmosphere. And there's quite a lot of debate currently when companies are, are making commitment toward uh, climate neutrality or net zero. Uh, you know, how far do you go in terms of engagement? And if we go one step further, we also start to hear a lot about uh, being climate positive or being a carbon negative, uh, which means uh, uh, being net zero and going further in terms of uh, uh, emission uh, avoidance to uh, really go beyond what's your own footprint. Florent, you talk about the transformation and you talk about net zero, but why is it critical that we're looking to go further? Going beyond net zero is really of paramount importance. If we want to fight climate change and, uh, and global warming, we've seen that this summer the IPCC has released its latest report on the climate change. And uh, there is now absolutely no doubt uh, that uh, human activity uh, has a significant impact on climate. The, the fight that is going on and the race that is going on is to uh, decrease our emission 
to avoid a global warming of more than uh, two degrees. So we need to ensure that global warming will not go beyond two degrees. That's what the scientists uh, explain. Uh, if we want to avoid a catastrophic situation for the environment, but also for the human being, and that be becoming net zero and going further net net zero is really critical because uh, we have no choice than to reduce our emission if we uh, want to have a chance of survival uh, in this century and beyond. That sounds uh, a bit dramatic, but when you look again at the IPCC curves, uh, the, the pace and the rhythm which we need to engage to reduce our emission is uh, absolutely uh, uh, huge. Reaching a net zero state is really critical if uh, we want to uh, continue I would say, live in a sustainable world. The burden of reaching net zero has long been focused on the individual, on eating less meat, driving a bit less, cycling to work. It's been focused on small changes which might, if we all take part in them, affect real and lasting change. However, the work that companies do in this space is equally vital, if not more so. I wanted to find out a little bit more about what we at Capgemini are doing in the race to reach net zero and what goals we have set in order to reach it and then to go beyond. So I spoke to Kiri Trier, our Director of Innovation and Strategy and Sustainability Lead here at Invent. I asked her to explain exactly what our goals are for net zero. I mean, we do have goals. Um, to reach our definition of net zero. So we have set ourselves ambitious targets by becoming climate neutral, not later than 2025, and we would like to reduce 10 million tons of CO2 equivalent with and for our clients. So we built an own carbon calculator to measure our CO2 emissions in our projects for our clients and with our clients. How have you done that with one of our clients? Can you give me an example how that's worked? Yeah, so for example, we did this in terms of our IT migration with one of the OEMs, so a leading automotive company. So we measured the impact on our project, so the CO2 emission impact, and we found out that in our agile project management way, we reduced the emissions, emissions by 50% and also by integrating new IT architecture. And what did, would that mean in general if we, if we ended up reducing our emissions by 50%? What kind of impact could that have? It actually has an impact on the goals of a company obviously on their CO2 targets, but also starts to rethink the way we work. So for example, we reduced our travel cost. We reduced our waste cost. We reduced our energy cost by finding new solutions and new ways how to work. So we find a kind of new yeah, workspace, how we define working with the client. So for example, not flying over to the client for every meeting and working remotely and also tracking and calculating the energy you are really needing um, to 
yeah, to behave, to work. For companies, setting goals and following through on them is how to get on this path to net zero. But it's only the first step on a long road, a long road which goes beyond stopping flying and calculating energy. It's a road which even goes beyond carbon neutrality. It's about becoming carbon negative. I like to quote Einstein, you know, no problem can be solved from the same level of consciousness that created it. So I think everything that we are working on is really trying to ask ourselves, is this the only way? And I think that's the value of of a designer's mindset. I needed to speak to someone in the know about all things beyond net zero. So I got in touch with Carol Pecknold, an executive design director at Frog, our global design and innovation consulting firm. Her work in designing sustainable business models has been vital for so many companies seeking to go beyond net zero. I ask her how companies can reach those targets they set and then even transcend them. Yeah, I think for me, what's interesting is if I look at sort of a two by two matrix, this helps me visualize if, if net zero is sort of in the center, we're not too high, too low uh, in that matrix. Uh, that's a really great place to be, a good target to hit. Uh, but I think above net zero are things that can lead to being more responsible and more regenerative. So I often like to talk about things related to being regenerative, which means we're not just trying to meet that midway target, but trying to exceed and be thinking about social and environmental things together and holistically when we're trying to hit uh, a better future. At, at Frog, we're really looking at um, going beyond net zero by talking about the social, environmental, and climate impacts in the work that we do. To do this, Frog have put together four pillars which describe the new business models we're going to need to begin implementing if we want to reach our climate targets. The four pillars really focus on uh, what we're calling sustainable experience. Often in this scenario, science is not enough to convince everyone. Um, So we like to talk in stories and experiences for people. So really looking at human and planet-centric experiences for customers, employees, you name it, and really focusing on the delivery of products, services, and environments that can really align with what we like to call a next economy. Uh, One of our other clients we've worked with looked at how can we get rid of single-use takeaway restaurant packaging, which was a really big issue during COVID. Um, And they've built an entire business around reusable packaging for and reusable material to be able to enable, you know, enjoyable food to come to somebody's home. And by taking out that obstacle or that what we think is a problem and and finding a better solution that's more sustainable, they're helping to make that experience more positive for customers, but also more positive for the planet. The next pillar focuses on creating new sustainable business models for existing brands, the next economy for brands. Can you tell me a little bit about what you do to help them to create a sustainable strategic purpose? Yeah, we work with brands um, to help them think through kind of What is the way you want to show up in the world? And I can give you an example. And so working with a university that really realized that the the role they were playing and they're they're building up, you know, sort of the future fashion makers, we were really able to um, unpack what was going to be different about the way the brand was going to show up. 
And they happened to be doing uh, sort of a, a rebuild of one of their buildings. And this was a real catalyst for thinking through strategically, what was this new building going to represent and reflect? And it was really a very collaborative experience for us to help them think through all through remote workshops, but inviting students, alumni, industry, faculty, all to come to the same table and to talk about what did it mean for them to really make a change. And I think one of the key things I walk away with that is was so critical to the success of this project was really the humility with which the, the key woman who we worked with came to the table and said, I don't know all the answers. I don't know how to do this, but I'm very open to collaborating with frog and with the rest of my team to be able to come and show up differently and and in a new way and it's inspiring you know revamping of curriculum it's inspiring a new way to onboard students a new way to recruit a new way to develop the entire program and I think that for me is how a next economy brand has to think. The third pillar Cara calls next economy teams. This means that workers are also involved in the move to net zero, not being left behind. It's organizational design that pushes through sustainable innovation. In the situation we find ourselves in, we're very aware that to create a future business uh, and have it be successful, it does take people. And it takes their talent and their abilities and tools and strategies to, to really enable them to deliver in this next economy that looks a little bit different, perhaps, than it does today. We'll be unpacking these issues much further in part two. But now for the final pillar, regenerative ventures. A net zero future, one filled with the potential of renewable energies, won't just require existing brands to change the way they do things. It is going to open up new ventures that we currently can't even conceive of. The other pillar is regenerative ventures, where we're really aware that the next economy is going to require new types of businesses that don't exist today. I wanted to dig further into this to find out about what some of these new ventures might look like. And luckily, Cara put me in touch with a company at the forefront of making a positive, sustainable change. A company which seeks to create something truly carbon negative. They are called Made of Air. I think for Made of Air, the the whole purpose of the company is to reverse climate change. This is Alison Dring, the CEO and co-founder of Made of Air, a carbon-negative materials company who take low-value wood waste and transform it into high-value thermoplastics that can reverse the advance of climate change. These materials can be formed with industry-standard production methods, converting manufactured products which traditionally produce emissions into permanent carbon sinks. So Made of Air is a climate company. And I say that because uh, what we make are thermoplastic carbon negative materials and we're producing resources that manufacturers can use to create products that can store carbon from the atmosphere. What we are is a climate company And our purpose is to reverse climate change. And the way that we do that is by producing carbon-negative materials that enable manufactured goods to store carbon from the atmosphere. And what we have is a net negative effect. We're taking more CO2 out of the air by using our materials than we create in our process. 
That's that's fascinating. So can you give me an example of, you know, what a what carbon ne- negative materials might be and how it has manifested in some of these manufacturing products? Sure. So a carbon negative material is really one that uses more CO2 out of the atmosphere than it than it produces. In our case, we're making a thermoplastic material and it's a biochar-based material. We look at wood waste and instead of letting that waste decay and let all the CO2 that's stored in that material go back in the atmosphere, we're converting it into biochar. And when we take that step, we're taking all the CO2 that's stored in that material and converting it into carbon, and it's a locked process. You won't see that CO2 go back into the atmosphere for thousands of years. So in this way, we are permanently taking CO2 out of the air. There's an enormous demand from our population to grow and and to provide housing and and all the products that we need. Um, This is a chance we have to take a carbon removal strategy and scale it up. And that's really what Made of Air is doing. What are some of the products the Made of Air materials have actually created? So Made of Air is producing a thermoplastic compound. We're currently applying it to durable products, so the built environment, uh, mobility, and uh, consumer goods. One focus in consumer goods is furniture. And the reason why we do that is we're looking at product lifetimes that are between 10 and 30 years. We've produced with Audi as one of our partners. Uh, We've produced the material in the form of facade panels for their dealerships, and we've delivered one outside Munich. uh, That's their flagship Um, dealership, and that's opened in April of this year. We've also partnered with H&M late last year and produced uh, a pair of sunglasses, so we did a production run with them, and those sunglasses became the first ever carbon storing sunglasses, and uh, we're certainly excited about the future with H&M looking into their supply chain and really thinking about where the products Uh, within their huge supply chain that can have real impact on the climate. Did you have any specific aha moment when you were starting on this journey? Um, (laughs) We've had several aha moments. Uh, One of the big aha moments for me was was learning that, um, that plants, the trees, are actually growing from nutrients in the air. I think that was a big turning point for me. It's something that I think that uh, kids should learn in, in first grade. You know, this is, it's hard for me that this, that that point came so late. It made me look at the planet differently. Uh, thinking about plants doing this kind of very amazing thing, photosynthesis and um, absorbing CO2 and, and kind of building blocks of plants coming from that. And it made me look at the universe differently. This We're living on a planet that can do this. Thinking about sustainability, thinking about our climate targets in the next 40, 50 years, um, we have finite resources. And we have historically taken our resources from below ground. And we're seeing a kind of shift happen now where our resources are going to have to come from above the ground. We're going to need food. We're going to need to house people. We need to build cities. We need to um, sustain wildlife. We have to have carbon sinks. And we're really looking at maxing out the performance of that land. I think that was a big moment for me, was realizing that this is a finite system. 
And we have to start thinking about what are the cycles involved. And we can even look beyond the physical things we're seeing and we can start thinking about our atmosphere and what we can harvest from there. Given all Allison has said, it's clear that the challenges of going beyond net zero are vast, especially for large organizations whose carbon footprints are tied up with supply chains and broader issues. As such, it's important to also look at the challenges that these companies face in the move to a sustainable future. What are the obstacles? What are the blockers? Understanding this will show us the way to affect real change. I went back to Florent to find out. What are the main blockers to achieving net zero for most businesses? So the main blockers to achieve uh, net zero speed and scale, reaching speed and scale. We saw uh, in the in the previous wave of transformation and the digital transformation wave in the past two decades that a lot of companies engage in large transformation, uh, but it takes a lot of time, going through a lot of POCs, costs a lot of money, and it took them basically two decades to uh, put that scale digital transformation. With sustainability, we don't have that time. So we need uh, speed and scale in uh, adopting more sustainable ways of uh, ways of living. What's preventing that is cl- uh, awareness needs to be raised. Even though it's all over the press, understanding of the impact of what companies need to do and what at the operational level people need to adapt to reduce uh, their, their emission. Secondly, uh, Technologies are there, but uh, they are not yet deployed at scale. Investing in new technology, uh, adopting uh, and deploying this technology across the organization in all the countries uh, will require a significant uh, amount of time and will need um, a lot of investment. So finding new economic models to finance those investment and accelerate the deployment of green technology, I'd say is a, is a second blocker. The, 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 the third blocker, I'd say it's, uh, it's regulations. Uh, a lot of the technology which exists today and are not yet scaled could be uh, uh, very much more easily deployed if regulation were a bit adapted or, or, uh, or, uh, or changed. We did a report last year uh, with uh, the Breakthrough Technology Organization that identified uh, 55 technologies that have a, a positive impact on the planet. And, and one of the findings of the report is that uh, uh, technologies are there, uh, but regulation is often not adapted to enable the deployment of technology. Kiri agrees with this, particularly on the idea of regulation because governance plays a vital role in achieving net zero. Is it governments that need to have a bigger role to play, to to push for going beyond net zero? Exactly. It's about the governance. Um, So what we see is that sustainability is still a topic for marketing and communication people or corporate social responsibility people, but it's not officially set within the board agenda. So actually what we would consider is that every board has a sustainability hat. 
and that every company has an own sustainability unit with scientists. And first, you have to find the right data. Like I said, you have to define what you really would like to achieve and, and ask the question, if this is really going to work because you have all the assets you need. And therefore, you need to first integrate an own sustainability unit with data scientists, with sustainability leaders who have a clear understanding of climate impacts, who know how to transform this into new ideas, into innovation, into new business models, and who are able to drive this proactively because they are decision makers. What we see currently is that most of the sustainability units, they are not buying centers because it's not easy to incentivize sustainability. So the return on sustainability invests. So asking the question, what do you need? What kind of amount of investment do you need to achieve real sustainability? That's the question. Well, it seems like that that's a blocker that we're facing. Can you tell me about a few other the blockers in that companies are facing when they're trying to achieve net zero? Yeah, so like I said, um, the fundament around this is the data set. Um, most of the companies haven't started to track their data and they're not keen on scope one, scope two, scope three emission data. So meaning what kind of internal data, external data and data from your suppliers um, do you need to track to achieve your goals? And obviously um, it might be not so easy for some of the companies, but this is as it is with all transformations. You need to start the change process somewhere, somehow, and then you need to invest in that. And today we do have these tools, we do have um, systems which can track your CO2 emissions automatically. We do have data sets where we can benchmark them. But you need to set it up and you need to have not only one person driving this, you need to have kind of an army doing this because CO2 emits in every production, in everything we are doing, you're losing energy and you need to find the right data. For Kiri, Data tracking is vital as companies gear up to fully invest in a sustainable future. It's something that will allow a broader view so that new business models can be appropriately and efficiently enacted. Kara agrees, but also tends to think about it in a bigger way. I wanted to know whether having a grand vision of going beyond net zero could actually be in some ways counterproductive whether setting huge targets for 20 years in the future could in fact be detrimental to the fight in the here and now. One question though, do you think having this big vision prevents us from reaching net zero or our targets in the here and now? Well, I think it's a little bit of both, right? I think all these topics we're speaking of today are systemic challenges and, and so when I have a big vision, I like to think of it like I have a bird's eye view. 
I can look over, you know, the, the come fly up high above something and I can see all of the parts. And I think that for me helps me to see the connectedness of all the decisions that might be made. And when I, as an employee in an organization, understand those connections, that big vision helps me to see my part. And I, you know, I liken it to a body. If, if, you know, the brain is telling my hand what to do or my mouth to speak or my eyes to open and shut. I mean, if I don't see the whole and I don't understand the whole, then, you know, it's sort of like part of my appendage gets cut off and doesn't have, you know, a fully, you know, a full comprehension of what's possible. That being said, if, if you only look from up above and you don't see where some of the problematic areas are in this blueprint, then you may either just focus attention on the problematic areas and not look at the flows between the two areas um, and understand that there's impacts and there's a domino effect of if we don't do this, it'll affect that. Uh, then I think we, we also miss an opportunity. Uh, I liken it to being a bit like a hawk. You know, a hawk is going to fly above and look at the target and go down. But there are, there are definitely steps between flying above and being on the ground that give different perspective. As you get closer to the ground, you have different perspectives. And if you don't connect to what's happening on the ground and you only stay up in a visionary space, you miss some of the interesting nuances of your organization that could make small change quite quickly that may not feel like it's leading to the vision quite yet, but because they're connected, uh, it all plays together and all creates a, a more long-lasting result. You know, we were talking about that that journey um, and the, the journey that the hawk is taking to get from in flight to on the ground, and we talked about some of the, the, step, the steps that you took. Can you talk a bit about the activities that might be counterproductive that you see from some of the companies that, are, that they're doing? Well, I think... What I witness is that people are just trying to do their best, to be quite honest. And I think, you know, a lot of this rides on uh, a human patience because there's a lot of things that you can do and data can tell you a lot. Science can tell us a lot. And that's all been available to us actually for quite some time. But I think what is, is counterproductive is when we continue to push the idea that we need to lower emissions or we need to do you know, something different, but we don't give people a path to do it. Um, so it's counterproductive for me to talk about strategies without steps that the base, you know, the, the, the consumer could take or the employee could take in order to actually feel like a sense of success or accomplishment in getting closer to the goal that we're all striving for. So to be to be somebody who just talks about net zero or talks about different kinds of sustainability initiatives um, and not give your employees or your customer a path to achieve it, well, obviously, you know, that becomes counterproductive. It's easy in the conversation about climate change, sustainability, and reaching net zero to become embroiled in a state of perpetual pessimism, to look at the big picture and think that, Perhaps the mountain we have to climb might be insurmountable. And given the challenges we've now addressed when it comes to reaching and even going beyond net zero, it's easy to see why. Is there a clear route ahead? Are these goals going to be reached in time so that catastrophic climate change won't affect us all? 
In the next episode, we'll look at some of the most inspiring work being done across the globe to ensure this isn't the case. We'll be hearing real stories about the people currently involved in polluting industries to see how companies are ensuring that no one is left behind as we move fully towards renewable energies and a sustainable future. Thanks to all today's guests, Florent, Kiri, Cara, and Allison. We'll be hearing some more from them in the next episode. If you enjoyed this podcast, don't forget to subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. This has been Future Sight, a show from Capgemini Invent. We'll see you soon. <laughs>